On this edition of the Scott Radley Show, we're going to be following up on something we talked about yesterday, the arena. Yesterday, Bulldogs owner Michael Landlauer talked about what he was looking for. Well, Sam Marula, Councillor, Ward 4, joins us to talk about what he is thinking when it comes to the arena today. We're going to be chatting, speaking of money, about coffee. Would you pay $101 for a cup of coffee? What if it was the best coffee in the world? People in the States, in San Francisco, are lining up for the opportunity to try the best coffee ever. We talked to the owner of the store who is offering this up. And how do they decide that a particular building is the exact right look, feel, to be a house or an apartment or whatever in a TV show or a movie? We talked to a location scout to try and explain how that house is right and that house is not right. All coming up. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You will have heard me chat with Bulldogs owner Michael Andlauer about his idea, his plans, his hopes for a new arena. He wants to build, with his money involved, a new building. And during the conversation, he reiterated a promise that he has made many times publicly that he will match the city dollar for dollar to make that happen. And he says that he is thinking of something as a new arena in the $60 million range, meaning the city, if this happened, would be on the hook for something like $30 million in that scenario, which is pretty much almost exactly what a report has said, that if the city is going to fix up First Ontario Centre to where it needs to be in the next four or five years, that's also $30 million. So you've got money to go to a new arena or money to go to fix up the old one. Common sense, then, what you do, right? Well, after that interview heard from Councillor Sam Marula, who said that there was a part of the discussion in that that I was missing. And so I said, only fair, only right to bring on Councillor Marula so he can lay out the part that is that was not talked about. He joins us now. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, you have said, and you, you said it in Andrew Dreschel's column, and then you told me today, this for you is a complete non-starter. Absolutely. So let's just uh, look at where we were, where we are, and where we're headed. Sure. So this process started in 2000. And ten, and and firstly, divesting ourselves from HECFI, which annually were compounding the subsidy, and at one point it reached eleven million dollars of city money. Yes, absolutely, to run all three facilities. I brought forward a motion to dissolve HECFI, put together a, a steering committee comprised of councillors that then went out to an RFP process to get the private sector involved. And uh, as a direct result, we now have Spectra, as well as um, the Carmen's Group, running all, all the facilities. So we've saved millions of dollars on that first part of the initiative. So the intent at that time was, firstly, to stop the bleeding on the subsidies, and secondly, create a, a, um, a form or a plan of action to get the city of Hamilton out of the entertainment business. We don't belong in the entertainment business. This is not 1975 or 1980. Uh, we need private sector to do their their bit in, in creating an entertainment sector. But taxpayers' money for that today is a non-starter. So we went through this process. We saved millions of dollars, millions of dollars in subsidies. And now we're looking at the capital component. Well, Hamilton today is not Hamilton of 15 or 20 years ago. We are right now the talk of the country. We are fourth largest uh, or or highest property values in the entire country. So 
we have development going on. Air rates in the city of Hamilton today for condominium developments um, is one of the most uh, prosperous in the country. So the city of Hamilton has a lot to offer in redeveloping that entire precinct, including a an arena. And that precinct would include an arena. It would include the Hamilton Place, the new convention center. The art gallery has been included. But more importantly, we have the authority to provide the approvals necessary from a planning perspective to do all of that, including the most important component, and that is the air rights. Being able to to build 26 or 30-story condominium towers. So it's a billion-dollar development, if not more. People are scratching at the door to be part of this already. We, We have interest of people wanting to be part of this. The... The condition of all of this, though, is that we will give the land, we'll give the approvals, but whoever comes in to build this over-billion-dollar development will have to provide a, a, an arena, the convention center, Hamilton Place, and the art gallery fully functional and operational in exchange. And the city divests itself entirely away from the entertainment business. We save on the subsidies. We save on the necessary capital, and we benefit in the increased assessment and the attached revenues from taxation. That's good business. So any talk of us spending even a penny towards any capital prior, prior to this is nonsense. It's a non-starter. We're not partnering to get into the business of building an arena. We're getting the hell out of the business. And in doing so, saving the taxpayers from an operational perspective, as well as creating more revenue for the taxpayers to mitigate any future pressures elsewhere in the city. Chatting about the idea of a new arena, a renovated arena, nothing like that, giving the land to developers what the situation is. And Sam, I see, I, I, you, you explained why you don't want to be spending the millions of dollars that it would take before the break there. Let me ask you this, though, because there's a report out there that you're aware of that said, I don't know the exact number, it's in the neighborhood of $30 million or so, that they've said, if we're going to keep First Ontario Centre operating at a reasonable level, sometime in the next four or five years, we're going to have to spend that much money. I think we all, you, me, everybody, agrees that a city of this size needs some kind of facility for concerts, for sports, for whatever else. Whoever owns that, that's that's a discussion that we're having. But that puts some speed, some urgency in this, does it not? Because if we're not wanting to spend that $30 million to keep this thing running, and you as a councillor, I don't think you want to let the existing building fall apart to the point where it can't be used under your watch, that puts some urgency to figure out an answer to this. Well, there aren't any public safety issues, and we are, we are in an urgent phase, and we've hired a consultant. We, we, the ball's rolling. We're, we're in the process right now of of developing a precinct plan. So I, I'm, I'm not sure where the disconnect is in the communication on all of this, but councils approved the initiative. Well, it's I think... Not just, it's I, not just that we have a report that's been drafted and sitting on the shelf. We went to a process of hiring a consultant, now it's the next phase. But... We, it's an over-billion-dollar development. These things don't happen overnight, folks. No, and, and I think that's fair. I, I think people understand that. I think if there, you ask where the disconnect is, I think for some people, I think for maybe a lot of people, and I don't think I'm breaking any news to you here, I think the disconnect or the sense would be we have had some big projects in this city over the last number of years, LRT, stadium, other things, that seem to get 
they move very slowly. They don't seem to have very quick resolutions, and this one seems like it may need to have a quick-ish resolution. Welcome to the world of politics. It's not a Hamilton issue. It's a world issue. That's what the democratic process is all about. You don't expect private sector to come into uh, any city and have somebody give them a blank check. Like, it's nonsense to, 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 to suggest otherwise. So it, 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 at the end of the day, just due diligence. We have a process. If people don't like it, they can they can leave. But at the end of the day, we're here to protect the taxpayer. I think ultimately all the other aspects are important, but not as important as protecting the taxpayer. So as much as we'd love to entertain proposals, and we're entertaining more proposals today than ever before in the city, we're on fire. Uh, so we've not seen this type of development in the city in our lifetime. So things are going well. So we're doing something right now. People need to be a little patient, but you also need to be connected to what is happening. So if people are interested in building an arena in town, then I would suggest that they reach out to our city staff and say, what is the status of this proposal? How can I become involved? But can so you... rather than trying to create a separate scenario which is a non-starter and it's not even on the table but can you no sit there can you envision table. can you envision a scenario though again because this report said that in the next four or five years this money is going to have to be spent could you no, envision that's a... assuming we're not doing what we're doing scott that's oh. listen to what i'm saying here that that's assuming we're, we don't have a plan to no i understand to, to no you don't because you that's just a report that said listen in the next five years we're going to have to spend x amount of money if council decides uh, about the status quo. So that's so not for Council's safety. Not, that's not so that the building operates still. Council has not decided to support the status quo. We are full force ahead in this over billion dollar development to demolish and rebuild and create an entire precinct, including potentially a thirty story condominium development. Okay, and so all and what I'm saying here is, and I understand your point. I really do. Uh, you may, you may think I don't. I, I I do get what you're saying. What I'm asking is, if this thing were to drag on because it takes a little time to get this thing done, could you it see it? It take four or five years. It may take four or five years to complete the construction. That's what I was about to ask. Could well, you see a scenario where there is no arena for a couple of years because this one is no longer functional and the new one hasn't been built? Then he's going to have to, or whoever, has to find a temporary um, bridging aspect, right? So Mountain Arena might be available for a period of time. Until that is developed, at the end of the day, the Tiger Cats went through it. Uh, any sports team goes through it. You can't can't have your your cake and eat it too. Uh, if we're going to build a new arena, there will be anytime, even if you renovate your own bathroom, you know there's an inconvenience, right? So imagine renovating an entire precinct of over a billion dollar development. There's going to be a significant amount of inconvenience, but when it's over and done with, everybody's going to be happy. What is a time frame in your mind? What is a time frame for this that is reasonable for council to be able to make a decision? And and I know you're saying the ball is rolling. This is already happening. But for to choose a developer and say, okay, you know what, we can start doing something here. What's what's reasonable? Well, you, you're going to have to go through a procurement process. Obviously, everything yep, has to be yep. open and transparent. Uh, we have a procurement process, so nothing could be expedited. So I, by the time we get shovel to the ground and, and it being completed. Yeah, it could be five years. And in the meantime, you might, out of that five years, maybe two years, you might not have a, an arena. I don't know definitively, but what I do know, there will be a great deal of inconvenience initially, but at the end result will be worth it. 
Last thing uh, on this one, and this, in your mind, does the development, there could be a development there, does the arena, convention center, whatever else, if you were to make a deal, in your mind, does it have to be on that location, or could it be elsewhere? No. What what council supported was a precinct in that area. That's our land. We own it. That's the benefit. That's that's the return on our investment. We own the land. We have we have um, approval authority, and at the end of at the end of the day, we're not putting any money towards us. Not a cent. All we're providing is the land and the approvals, and we're we're saving tens of millions of dollars as a result. Ward Four Councilor Sam Rule, always appreciate you coming on. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, no problem. Thanks, Scott. That is. Uh... That is, I said this last night, and I was clearly prescient. This is not the last we're going to be hearing about this. We're going to be talking about this a lot because it's going to be bouncing back and forth, and it will take time. It will take time. And I I may not be quite as optimistic, quite as confident as Councilor Marula that this will be done already in four or five years. I, I hope he is correct. I hope he is correct, but there have been a few projects, as you may have noticed, that have taken a little longer than that, but I hope... Maybe this one is different. Let's hope. It's a big project if it goes through. Let's hope. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here in Hamilton, we like our coffee. You may have noticed that. You're probably already paid more than the equivalent of your mortgage into Tim Hortons over the years or Starbucks or any of the innumerable independent coffee houses that are popping up every week. Seems we drink a lot of the stuff around here. Just when the snow thaws and you see all the crumpled cups under the snow, you know how much coffee we drink. So we consider ourselves pretty knowledgeable, I think, about the drink here in the home of Tim Hortons. And I don't think, again, because of all those coffee houses that, you know, three, four, five bucks for a cup of coffee, I don't think we consider ourselves cheap when buying it. We're willing to spend to get a good cup of coffee. So let me ask you this. Would you be willing to pay $101 for a cup of coffee? 101. That's Canadian. 75 American. What if it was the world? What if you were told that $101 would buy you the world's best cup of coffee? You could drink the best cup of coffee in the world for 101 bucks. Probably not every day, but as a sampler. Well, folks in San Francisco this week have had that opportunity over on the weekend. And when they put this up for people to be able to come in and do this, the spots sold out. Sold out, $101 for a cup of coffee, and they sold, I'm not even sure, I think it was about 80 people, sold out all those spots. Made me wonder, how good could a cup of coffee possibly be to be worth that much money and to make that happen that that many people would be willing to spend for it? Well, I figured out who we should ask. Her name is Heather Perry. She's the past chair of the Barista Guild of America. She's a two-time United States barista champion. I didn't even know such a thing existed. And second in the world championships. Again, didn't know about it. Maybe we'll find out about that from her. She is also the president of Clutch Coffee, which is the company, the store that had this coffee for sale. She joins us now. Heather, thanks for doing this today. Oh, thanks for having me. How good was that cup of coffee? It was fantastic, worth every penny. You obviously tried it. Yes, definitely. So was it, and I, I, this is the first thing that went through my head when I started hearing about this. Was it really that good or having been told that this was the best coffee ever, you convinced yourself that it was that good? I will tell you this for sure. It's definitely one of the best five coffees I've ever tried without a doubt. You know what I mean? 
Um, it's a fantastic coffee. It's what we call a geisha varietal. So coffee, the way I describe it is kind of like apples, right? If you go to the, your local produce market, you have many different apple varieties to choose from. Well, coffee's the same way. There's lots of different coffee varietals. But this one coffee varietal called the geisha varietal has this really unique flavor to it, almost tea-like, like you're drinking a black tea with some bergamot and some tropical fruits. And so this varietal is known for making really good coffee. And Panama is where they've had the most success with this varietal, just bringing out the best possible qualities. I mean, it just has the perfect growing climate, if you will. Um, think of Bordeaux from France, right? Just the perfect growing climate for those grapes. That's what the geisha varietal has found in Panama. There's a few other countries that have had some success with it, but Panama is really where this coffee shines. And then this particular producer um, from the Alita estate, Wilford and his family, they have just taken such care and such exceptional, they have produced such exceptional quality coffee. When you taste this cup, you, you don't even know you're drinking coffee. Somebody else was trying it with us and they were like, man, it's almost like a fruit juice or something. And that's what you get because it's just so juicy. There's so many fruit notes coming out of it. I mean, anybody who would taste this coffee, you don't have to be an aficionado to taste it and say, wow, this is really different. This is something unique that I have not tried before. That's what almost anybody could say when tasting this coffee. I, I, the name intrigues me only because when I hear of geisha, I think of Japan and other things other than coffee. I have no idea right, yeah. where the name came from. Do you know where the name came from? You know, I don't. It's always what it's been called in the coffee industry. It's just a varietal, and that's kind of been the name. It's spelled two different ways, but it, it comes from Ethiopia. It ended up in Panama by way of Costa Rica, actually. Um, so the geisha varietal just actually made a resurgence only about 15 years ago. So it's still fairly new to the industry, but just a really unique varietal. So from the time, so they're growing these beans in Panama, as you mentioned, which is, again, not necessarily a country that I think of when I think of coffee. I think of Ethiopia or I think of uh, Papua New Guinea or Jamaica, maybe. I, 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 Panama never comes to mind, but it, that's good to know now because I had no idea. What is the, what happens between the time it's grown and the time it's in your cup? What makes it so special? What's the process? That's a great question. So for those who don't know, coffee's a cherry. It grows on a tree. So when it comes to what makes an exceptional cup of coffee, you definitely have to start with just the terroir that the coffee is grown in, right? And, and that's what we talked about with that microclimate that you've got in Panama with this particular lot of coffee. You know, the Alita estate, when it comes to this particular coffee, there's only 100 pounds of this particular lot. Um, now, he grows much, a ton more than 100 pounds, obviously, or 50 kilos, if you will. But it's these special 100 pounds that were grown in the specific area of the farm that got that extra care to really push it to be such an exceptional coffee. So one is that microclimate that it's grown out in that varietal. But then on top of that, once you pick that cherry off that tree, you've got to get that bean out of it. And the way that you do that is called processing. And there's a lot of things that a farmer and a producer can do when they're processing the coffee that will influence it in the final cup. And taking proper care to process it will ensure really one of the most delicious cups. And that's just what Wilford done, we did really from the beginning. And so when we tried this coffee for the first time, we knew it was something special. And so when that green coffee finally makes it to us and we have the responsibility and the care to roast it and then serve it to customers, our job is really don't screw it up. I mean, they, they've done such an amazing job with it. We want to make sure when we roast it, we bring out all of those qualities that we tasted. We don't cover any of them up with the roast or underdevelop the coffee so you miss out on them. 
So we roast to what we call as our peak of flavor roast profile, which really means roasting it to where you can maximize all the potential of that coffee. And then for brewing here at Clatch Coffee, we're also home to the two-time U.S. Brewing Cup champion, Todd Goldsworthy. So we had him really dial in the coffee to make sure that we were brewing it so that the customers really got to experience just the best cup. And for those who we shipped it out to, we gave them brewing instructions as well so they could do that. I think you may have left something out of the processing procedure. I read in a couple stories about this that you and the other coffee drinkers may not be the first people or animals or creatures to have this go through their system. Is that correct? No, that is not correct. Okay, there were stories that there was, the, the, the one I read in the USA Today says the beans are eaten by civets, a cat-like animal, and then pooped out. That's not true. That, there's a coffee that's done that, and that is called Kopi Luwak, and that is absolutely not what we are serving. I was going to say, I'm not sure how I would have felt about that. Uh, anyway, I, just to yeah, that I point. I feel about it, and I know I'm not going to be serving it. Well, to that point, and we're totally off topic, I'm wondering who the first person was who ever saw that lying on the ground and said, you know what, I'm not going to pick coffee beans today. I'm going to brew that up. That, I, that, I've never understood that, and we won't go down that path. But anyway, um, <laughs> it just seems like an odd one to me. Anyway, uh, so now forgive my um, high, high-end coffee drinking etiquette, but when people come in and they want to sample a $75 cup of coffee, do they drink it like a cup of coffee or is this more like a wine tasting? Is there a lot of sipping and slurping and, and swishing around and that kind of thing to really get all the flavors? You know, it's a little bit of both. I would say everybody enjoys it on the, everybody enjoys it differently. You know what I mean? Some people come because they are coffee aficionados and want to really dissect it and tear it apart. You know what I mean? And so they take their time and they do that kind of wine stuff with it. Well, other people come in and they just are coffee lovers and they just want the opportunity to try the best coffee in the world. And so that's why they're there and they just sit there and they just enjoy their cup and drink it as they would any other cup. So it's really up to the consumer and how, how they best want to enjoy it. Does anybody dare to put cream and sugar in it or do you have to drink it black? So you absolutely do not have to drink it black. I would absolutely recommend, and I always tell everybody, to try it black. Because you definitely change the flavor of coffee when you're adding cream and sugar to it. I will tell you, we have cream and sugar drinkers who come in and they have gotten this coffee and they have asked if they can. And we always encourage them, hey, how about you try it like this and then see how you feel after taking a few sips of it. And nobody ends up adding cream or sugar to it. Because again, this coffee is just so unique. You know, when you think coffee, you think notes of, you know, roasty or smoky or bitter, things like that. And this coffee just has none of it. It's on a totally different level, almost like an herbal tea, like I was saying, like a fruit punch. I mean, it's that type of combination. It's just so unique. And it's not because we're adding anything to the coffee as well. So everybody who has come in has has drank it black, but we by no means stop them from enjoying it however they want to. It was interesting. Today, before you were coming on here, when you agreed to come on, I watched a few videos from people from newscasts or whatever else trying this, and every single person, it seemed anyway, had a different thing that they picked up, a different flavor or a different something. I mean, it really did feel or look like a wine tasting. Yeah, and everybody picked up a different flavor or, you know, so aromatic because this coffee is just so complex that everybody is going to pick up something different. You know, when they are judging these coffees in order to award them best coffee in the world and that allows it to yield such high prices, they, you know, the cuppers uh, that are tasting down at Origin, they write down everything that they taste. And this coffee, I think they had 26 different flavors they wrote down for it wow. because it just comes so complex and has so much going on. And it changes so much from hot to meat to cool, you know, from hot to warm and warm to cool. It just changes so much. Do, am I correct that you have a sister who is a sommelier? 
Yeah, me and my sister are both sommeliers. Oh, you are? Together. Okay, so, yep. you, so you, you are then someone who, in the wine industry anyway, you would be someone who I assume would be pretty good at picking out those flavors. So is that something that when you're sipping it that you are trying to do is to identify all those different things or just enjoying coffee? No, when I'm doing something like this, I'm definitely trying to pick out flavors. You know, when I drink a cup of coffee, there are absolutely times when I go in and I just want to enjoy it. And I've had the opportunity and the luxury in order to try this coffee a few times now. And there, the, the, the funniest thing about this coffee, I think, is that you don't have to try and pick out flavors. Even if you're just trying to enjoy it, these flavors just jump out at you. You know what I mean? And you're just like, wow. I mean, I, there are times that I just drink coffee. I'm like, oh, that's a nice cup of coffee. And I don't give it a second thought. And I drink it and go on with my day. This coffee, you just can't do that with. You sit there with it, and it's just like, man, I got so much, you know, Meyer lemon in that flavor. And you go back to it a few minutes later, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's tons of raspberry coming out of it. You're not trying to, but these flavors are just so prominent. You guys bought, uh, and we got a couple minutes left here. You guys bought, I think, 10 pounds of this. Uh, that yep. was at the price that was offered. That's over $8,000 worth of coffee. Now, that's not going to bankrupt your store, I'm assuming. But was there any doubt in your mind or the store's mind when you buy, you put that much money in that you're going to be able to find people to come in and buy it? There definitely is because you're, you're not eating. So there's always a doubt, right? Because it's like, man, that, that's a ton of money that you're asking people to pay for a cup of coffee. And you know you're going to get some people who just want to be able to say, hey, I tried the best coffee in the world. But you also want to make sure that you put it out there so people who really love coffee can enjoy all of the hard work that's gone into it. But the way that I always explain a cup like this to people is you look at, we, we talked about wine a few times now. When you look at the most expensive bottle of wine in the world, right, most of us will never even see it much less have the opportunity to look at it or smell it or taste it. But we can have the best coffee in the world, and it's only going to set us back $100. You know, which is it's by no means it's something to push aside and say that's nothing. But at the same time, it's coffee can be, the coffee is still a very affordable luxury, which is why I think that it draws so many people in. You know, if you can't go out to a full dinner, you can still meet somebody for coffee. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about coffee. We are sadly out of time. But when you say that people could try this if they were intrigued, I believe based on your website that if someone was interested in ordering, there are small amounts that they can still get to try this and they would have to do it at home, not fly down to where you are. Uh, Is that still the case? Could people still order some? Yes, there's a few bags still for sale on the website if you happen to be in the SoCal or NorCal area, you're more than welcome to bring your bag into our store and we will happily brew it for you. Your website is what? Clatchroasting.com. There you go. So if someone is interested for yourself or if you know someone who is a real coffee freak and they really, this would be a great gift for someone if you got the money and you want to give them something totally unique, clutchroasting.com. Heather Perry, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Not sure that Tim Hortons is going to put the $75 or $100 coffee on their menu, although, you know what? People would buy it. If you said it was the best cup of coffee ever, there would be people who would buy it. Uh, Clatch, K-L-A-T-C-H, roasting.com, if that is something you think you know someone in your life who would want to have a $100 cup of coffee. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I spent part of last week in Los Angeles. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. This will not be a travel log. But one of the things we did was to drive around, being ridiculous, driving around to a few homes and buildings that were used in TV shows that later became iconic so we could take pictures with them. It was very, it was fun. It was ridiculous. I went to the Cunningham's home from Happy Days, the Brady Bunch house, the Golden Girls house, the apartment building that Jerry lived in in Seinfeld. Interestingly, that means that in the city limits of Los Angeles, we rep, we drove from Milwaukee to LA to Miami to New York. 
which I thought was strange. Uh, after one of those stops, though, the four of us are in the car, the, those of us who are traveling together. We were in the car and we made the same comment. What was it that made that particular house or that particular building right for that shot? Because there are, as you can understand, tens of hundreds of thousands of buildings and homes in Los Angeles and in every other city that are unique that could conceivably work. Why did the location scout say, look at that particular home and say, yeah, that's the Brady Bunch's house or that's the Seinfeld apartment building. And we could ask the same question around here because as you know, Hamilton is used now often for movies and TV shows. There's lots of stuff going on around here and location scouts are finding buildings and finding properties and saying, yeah, that is the place that fits that. What is it about those places? How do they do this? How do they decide what they are going to use and what fits properly. Well, there's one person to ask about this that I know. His name is Jonathan Matthews. He is a professional location scout, has worked in this city many times, worked on The Handmaid's Handmaid's Tale, has worked on other things. He joins us now. Jonathan, thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well. Uh, These buildings, some of the ones I just mentioned and a lot of other ones, have become burned into our brains because we've seen these and they've become identifiable with a show and with, with other things. Um, does that mean that the location scout did a great job or does that just mean the show was good? Well, first of all, let's start off with the fact that a location scout is nothing more than a butler to the production. Um, the producers make the decisions um, and the decisions are made on, you know, many different factors. I mean, the one that would jump into my mind right away is the actor's availability. So you were talking about the exterior building used in Seinfeld, and yeah, it was shot in, uh, I believe, Koreatown in yes. uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. So that building uh, had nothing more going for it than it looked like a building out of New York, um, which is where the show is scripted to take place. And yet, very little of the show, I think there's a couple of exterior shots uh, of them walking on a sidewalk. Um, my first guess would be that that's a back studio lot. Um, but, you know, they may have done a few exteriors in, in New York. But the buildings themselves, I mean, it, it looks like New York. I mean, we cheat Toronto for Boston, Chicago, New York every day. But if you're a location scout, and again, I, I understand if you're going to be doing a huge production you, and you've got the whole crew there, but for a building like that, we'll use that example since you brought it up, NBC, which obviously did Seinfeld, has people in New York, has people everywhere. If you're using a New York location and you've got people there, why not just find a New York apartment? What, what would be special if you're walking around and you're doing it? What would, what would it be about that particular building? And I know you didn't do that one, but what would it be that you would go, you know what, that is it. That's the one. Well, I, I could I tell you the reason why. It's a pretty good guess, and I'm, I'm sure it's pretty accurate. You know, you've got all of the cast that are on that show, all of the actors and actresses that live in, most of them live in L.A. Um, so that show's kind of dating a little bit back, but still, they're in L.A. Now, the major set, Jerry's apartment, the hallway outside of that apartment, that's a set. That's built on a soundstage. Yep. So if all of the union deals are done down in Los Angeles, the actors are tied to contracts down in Los Angeles, it would be a huge expense to move all of that include like you know even if you just move the actors and the producers and the directors and whatnot to new york and you'll hire a new york crew i mean i'm just as a producer mind it's like a ching ka-ching ka-ching i mean that's just way too expensive so then they charge the responsibility to a location scout in los angeles and they say find me an exterior apartment building that looks like it would be in new york 
So that's what they do. They go out and they they scour the different looks of L.A. You know, L.A. is pretty, it has many different architectural components to it. So I'm sure they could find something, and lo and behold, they did. Do you need a per, do you need permission of a building's owner to shoot the exterior of a building? Oh sure. I mean, there's a lot of legalities that are around you know location rights and whatnot. I mean, that's why we always sign a location agreement with the owner of a building or anything that we're going to be featuring in the TV show or uh, film that uh, you know could come back uh, you know as a copyright or just somebody owns that building, especially when you're focused on it and you're featuring it. Um, as in you're locked on that shot and there's no mistaking that that's the image that you're trying to get. I mean, there's many different laws around traveling shots through, you know, cities and towns. But, yeah, because if, if you set up on a public street, the, the rules, as I understood them, and maybe it's only from a news perspective, was that if you can see it from the public street, then it's public property. But you can't just do that with a, with a, a shot for an exterior for a movie or a TV show. No, that, that's true, but I mean, I just want to make it clear, I'm, I'm not a clearance lawyer, no, no. <laughs> but I do know from my own experience that, you know, when we are shooting, like you say, anything within the public eye is, you know, public domain, that's a very general statement. Now, if you've got an actor standing in front of a building and, you know, that building is prominently displayed, and there's no mistaking where you are, well, that's where it gets in a little bit of a gray area. And most producers will want a location scout or manager to go and get a location contract signed from those property owners, you know, to release the rights of the imagery. Because it can have an impact. And again, I mentioned a number of places, and I can tell you that I, I know that we were not the only people that day or any day that went by those houses. If, if you choose a location and it becomes iconic, it is going to be a tourist destination. We, we have that happening, you know, in, in Toronto. I mean, um, there's there's many different locations that are iconic to so many moviegoers, and believe me, as a crew member in Toronto and, you know, southern Ontario, I appreciate it. Does that affect the choices then? Because you may have a place that you really like, and the building, how, many, how often does the person say, no, nah, I'm not interested? Well, that's an interesting question. Oftentimes, you know, you, you can imagine, as you said, the amount of filming in Hamilton, well, that's even, you know, two, threefold in Toronto for sure. Um, a lot of directors and producers, when you take them places that are, you know, they're from the States or wherever in the world, and they say, has anyone ever shot here before? <laughs> no, no one's ever shot at Casa Loma. Ever. Yeah. No. no, no, I cannot remember ever anyone being here. You know, and so you, you have to, you know, designers play a big part in this too. I mean, they augment buildings, they change things. I mean, something that always uh, amazes me with friends that aren't, you know, in the industry, and why would they know this? But when you watch a show like Fraser or Seinfeld or, you know, any of those older shows that you were referencing, even the new ones, you know, we build these apartments on sets, on studio stage uh, floors, and they'll put what they call a, a translite outside of the window that looks like a New York or Chicago or whatever city they're saying they're in, skyline. So, you know, to the naked eye, you would think, oh, we're in New York, or we're in Chicago. There it is. There's, you know, the John Hancock building. There's uh, the Empire States building. You you mentioned about how, you know, the Casa Loma, and there are obvious ones. When you were here uh, working with Handmaid's Tale, for example, um, I, I believe you guys used the Scottish Rite at one point for, or maybe more than at one point. But, I mean, that's a, that's an obvious one with the kind of film, the kind of show you're doing that has that look to it, that has that feel to it, that one, that's pretty obvious. But you've also, you also did a lot of other locations around houses and things. How do you choose 
which house? What is it? What does the house say to you when you look at it, when you're driving around? What is it that you notice? You go, you know what? That is exactly what I'm looking for. How do you do that? Okay, well, it's, it's based on what uh, conversations with the director and designer primarily for, for my position. Um, you know, I can read the script and I read the slug lines and I see the description of the house or the building. And then there's many conversations, creative conversations with the designer of the film or the TV sh- series. Um, and then, of course, cost comes into play, so producers are always involved in those conversations. And I get given basically a shopping list. You know, it needs to be on a quiet street. It needs to be a mature street, uh, mature treed street. Um, I want space between the houses. I want them brick, not wood. So, I mean, we're given a list of what we need to go and look for. But when we get there, we can think of different ideas of outside of the box. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I know you said Cape Cod style, but then there was this Georgian architecture place beside it, and it looked really cute and kind of, you know, so there's a, there's a bit of salesmanship that goes with it. But, um, you know, primarily we're looking for the look that the designer and director want, and, and they, they give us that uh, instruction. Not to belabor the point, but there are thousands of homes in this city, if you were shooting in Hamilton. So... You know, and when someone says, well, we need a family home, even if they limit it to some of those things, it still leaves things pretty wide open, I would think. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, you say a family home, and okay, fine, dime a dozen. You could find any different style anywhere in in the great city of Hamilton. But we also look at things from a logistical point of view. Where were we shooting the day before? Where will we be shooting the day after? I mean, in film, when we prep prepare to make the film. There's so many, it's like getting ready for a chess game, you know, but you've already got your moves already pre-planned because everything is budgeted down to the last cent. Like we only spend money when we're making a movie. We don't make any money. So it's, it's watched. So the logistical side is a huge part of how we choose locations that may seem to the average viewer that, you know, they're a dime a dozen. You could get one anywhere. Is there a science to it or is it entirely an art? I tell you, <laughs> if if we were if we were scientists in this, uh, we'd all be doctors. That's for sure, especially in this line of work. But there's definitely a science to it. It's um, there's so many different things: uh, weather, uh, time of the year, uh, the ability to be able to control the area that we're filming in, and that's based on you know the the great help that we get from the Hamilton Film and Television Office, Hamilton Economic Development, and well, I mean, just Hamilton City Council is fantastic. They they really do get it. It, okay, is there a possibility, when you do this, have you ever looked back at something that you have found mm-hmm. and, and watched it on film later and went, you know what, that, is, that was the completely wrong choice? Like, does it, and not necessarily even you, like, is it possible to have a wrong choice or just a better choice? Sure, but that burden would never, you know, it doesn't really fall on me. I mean, there, there's, there's so many checks and balances in the, in the decision-making process that I'm uh, quite a few uh, rungs down the ladder from <laughs> who would wear that. Would you ever think that, though, that, oh, you know, I think they took the wrong one? Or is it just, you know what, if they, they can make any house work or any building work if they really want to? Scott, I think that sometimes I start reading scripts. Um, but, yeah, no, I, <laughs> you, sometimes you can see a train wreck before it happens. But, the no, there's obviously movies that I've been a part of that I watch after, and I just, you know, I think, wow, well, that wasn't as good as what I thought it might have been. But, uh, you know, I like to take pride in my work. So, you know, I, I always know that there's a reason why they did things. And, 
sometimes you just have to let that go. Well, what would you say, and I'm asking you off the top of your head, you had no idea I was going to ask this question, so forgive me if it's ridiculous, but what would you say is among or one of or the iconic home or building ever that, that people would look at and say, that's the, that's the, what, is there one that comes to mind for you? Uh, well, I, I think I mentioned it earlier. Castle Loma, I think, is is pretty iconic. I mean, most uh, so, sorry, I mean, world. I mean, sorry. You're right. Absolutely, that is iconic. People sure. would recognize it. But I mean, from a movie. I mean, I was thinking of the Brady Bunch house or something, where it's like immediately everyone goes, "Oh yeah, I know what that one looks like from the TV show." Is there one for you oh, that comes to yeah, mind? Like a, from a logo perspective, well, I think the uh, the exterior house um, of uh, the. TV series Full House. Oh, ab- in San Francisco, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You know, or you know, some of the um, iconic uh, diners. That I'm, I'm dating myself here, but you know, Happy Days. You know, the diner, the exterior. Yep. Um, diner they played in the in the show, but no, that there are. Yeah, there's definitely, especially when a series runs for eight or nine years. So the question is, uh, and I think it's a perfect example you came up with with the Full House one uh, on the hill there in San Francisco, going down. Had they not chosen that one, whoever the producer, director, location scout, whatever, had they not chosen that and chosen a different one, because of the show, because of the uh, people liking the show, all the rest, the popularity, would that other house have become iconic? Did it have to be that? Is the choice of that house what made it iconic or was it the show? I think it was the show. I mean, you know, you could take a show like Sanford and Son. That wasn't a real great, (laughs) I mean, it was a joke, the the whole... uh, the comedy that series but no i i think no i i think it's the show more than it's what people relate to the show but you know i want to say about that house the exterior of full house if you really look at the architecture of that house and then when we go inside on the the sound stage there's nothing about that interior that matches the exterior <laughs> no of course not like it's like maybe 15 or 18 feet wide. Yeah, they didn't even try in that one. Right. And yet you go in and there's like four families living in that house and there's rooms galore. <laughs> yeah, but who's who's checking for that kind of stuff, really, Jonathan? Well, I'm the worst person to go to a movie with because I'm looking at continuity and I'm like, look, yeah, there's that cup again. Like, you know, we found out what last week with Game of Thrones, the the, yeah, the coffee cup. cup. Yeah. Starbucks, you know, and uh, then the joke started coming out of writing whole all of Daenerys's name on it, like they do the baristas at uh, Starbucks. Just before I let you go, let me ask yeah. you one thing: Would you want you, this? Is what you do for a living? You find these places, and if you do a great job, and you lead the director or the producer to the right place, it, it, it could be perfect. Would you want to be the owner of a home that became iconic from movies or TV? I think it takes a special person for that to answer that. I mean, myself personally, yeah, I'd be very proud. I think it would be great. Um, Until people started walking on your lawn and peering in the windows. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a little creepy, but uh, it, I'm sure it happens. And you know, but people's real estate value might rise too. So who knows, right? There's always a, a, a silver lining uh, in some stories. Well, the Brady Bunch house just sold the HGTV for what three million dollars. So you're probably right. If if you get the right place, you can make some dough. Absolutely. And, you know, the more people that open their homes, the possibility of having film in it, all the better. Jonathan Matthews, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this today. Always good to talk to you, Scott. Take care. That is, uh, it's a fascinating one to me. It really is. Because as I say, as we were driving around looking at these homes and iconic homes, like homes now, buildings, houses that you look at, you immediately recognize. That's immediately synonymous with that show. And you think, how did, how we were all talking about it. How did you choose that one? The, the, 
the house that the Golden Girls was filmed in, for those of you who remember that show, it's a few years ago now. It is on a street where every single house is completely different. There's no cookie-cutter homes along there. Beautiful street. And I'm looking thinking every single one of these homes could have been used. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to put your head in the idea of, you know, four senior women living together in Miami, it wasn't Miami, but every single one of these could have looked like that kind of house. What uh, We couldn't figure out now that it worked, obviously, but we couldn't figure it out. Same with the Seinfeld building. We drove past hundreds of apartment buildings that were all kind of similar looking, yet that was the one. It, 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 is, it is an art for sure, maybe a bit of a science, but it is an art for sure to be able to figure that one out. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.